And the rest of us are going to continue in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at the bigger part of chapter 5 today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, I ask that you would help us to see the truth of what you've done for us. Help us to know you better. Help us to appreciate the work of Christ more and to appropriate in every way the blessings of Calvary into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I kind of would call my sermon Lessons from Ten Verses because there's like not one sermon in this passage you could push a sermon onto the passage or you could try and pull out just one or two verses and preach a sermon on them. But if you look at the first 10 verses of chapter 5, it's not going to be, and we will look at them, but it's not going to be a simple like, oh, let's uh, preach a message on that theme today. I'm actually going to want to be faithful to each of the verses. And so as we study scripture, what happens is, is amazing. We come to understand more of God's character. We learn more about ourselves and our needs, but we also learn deep things about who God is and what He's done and what motivated Him to do these things. And when you come to know God through reading His Word, you find yourself in a place of strength because then even when you're out there and you don't have your Bible with you and something happens, you know who God is, you know what He's done, you stand firm. And amazingly, as we read Scripture, you can even experience God. And what I mean by that is, while reading God's Word, sometimes the Holy Spirit comes alongside of you and starts to massage that Word into your heart. And you feel reassurance sometimes. Other times you feel conviction. And sometimes you feel consolation or comfort, His loving presence. And I've often asked God for that when I'm doing my private study of His Word it should be devotional, not academic. Even if I'm studying to prepare a sermon, I'm saying, God, I want to see your heart. I want to feel your heart. I want to know you. And so as we go through these 10 verses, I want to encourage you that you can approach God's word with faith, that he will actually come alongside of you and open your eyes to him more and more. So let's read from Hebrews 5 verse 1 to 10. For every high priest chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is our passage for today. What's new in there? I mean, we've been walking through Hebrews together, 
So there's something fresh there that we haven't seen before. I'll tell you because you don't know what I'm getting at. It's Melchizedek. We haven't heard about him before. And so we're going to get to see more about Melchizedek, not mostly today, but when we get to Hebrews chapter 7, we'll see much more about Melchizedek. But actually, as you can see, there's always something being added to the explanation of who Jesus is through Hebrews. As we've gone chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, we're seeing more and more about Jesus. And now we're seeing something about his priesthood as a high priest. And there's so much important information that we have to go through verse by verse. So starting at verse 1, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So this is what happened in the Old Testament. There was um, the people of God, Israel, and they had uh, the same problem as all of humanity. They had the problem of sin in their lives. And then God designated some priests for them. And we know that those priests were to come from the tribe of Levi, uh, the Levitical order. And then specifically the the office of the priest would come out of Aaron's family. And uh, the high priest, as you can see, was chosen from among men. Why? Because the high priest had to be a representative from man's side doing the work of ambassadorial work taking man's case to God. So he's reaching from man's side towards God. And the high priest was therefore chosen from among men as a representative of people in covenant with God. He had to bring offerings and make sacrifices for sins. That was his responsibility. And something else we know is that there was only ever one high priest at a time. There were never two high priests, there was just one high priest at a time. There were other priests, and they came from, the ones carrying that office came out of Aaron's family line, but the, the whole ministry of priesthood was carried by the tribe of Levi. They weren't allowed to possess land or have ownership of land, but they took care of the temple or the tabernacle. So, this is what was happening. And... Uh, I mean, while I look at that, I realize it's imperative, therefore, that if Jesus is a high priest, he had to be a human being. If Jesus were to come and represent humanity before God, he had to be a man to stand as our representative. So, if you haven't understood the incarnation and some of its implications, Jesus took on flesh and became fully human. So that he could be chosen by God as a high priest from among men. It's wonderful. God made this plan in order to make atonement that would last. So the the priest was to carry empathy for those who needed his representation as he himself was weak and sinful. And we can see this in Hebrews 5 verse 2. It says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So I think about the earthly priests and they were meant to be on the side of the people. They were going to plead the case of the people before God to make offerings and ask God for mercy for the people. But they could relate to the people because as a high priest, if you were one of the high priests like Aaron, then you knew you were a sinful man. 
I mean, Aaron and, 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 and he walked with Moses and then he got in trouble when Miriam and he were up to no good and there was murmuring and Aaron was not a perfect guy and none of those high priests were. And so that's, so Hebrews 5 verse 2, speaking about the human high priests, the, the, let's say not, now I've just emphasized Jesus was human, but he didn't have a sinful nature and Jesus didn't have sin. So now we're starting to see some kind of a difference between Jesus and the priests of Israel. But he's, it says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he, because of his own sin, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the people. So the writer's starting to show you that the priest had this necessary empathy he had to carry. He had to... He had to use his own humanity as a way of saying, I'm like the people I'm representing. I'm also a sinner. And he had to atone for his own sins. And interestingly, with the human priests, this didn't always occur. What I mean by this is there are examples in Scripture where the human priest, uh, and when I say human priest, what I'm really wanting you to hear me say is the priests of the Old Testament under Aaron's descendants. Those guys because they weren't perfect, actually didn't always care enough. So you get like Hannah coming to the, to the altar and weeping because she's um, wanting a child so badly and she's a good woman and she weeps and wants to pray for a child and Eli is the priest and he says, get out of here you drunk woman. Oh wow, that's not very empathetic or sympathetic or even right because he read the situation wrong so Eli is a priest he was one of these priests and he was beset by weakness and he was supposed to be gently what does it say can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward and instead he tries to chuck Hannah out because he thinks she's a drunk because she's weeping so much I don't know if you've ever seen someone so drunk that they cry is it really? I can understand his mistake. And now I'm being sympathetic to Eli because I'm a pastor and I want to tell you any human guy like me or Eli, we're going to make mistakes. And anytime you approach the leadership of a church, you're looking at that kind of leadership. Yes. You're looking at the kind of leadership that is sometimes going to misjudge you, misread you, misunderstand you and call you a drunk maybe. And try and throw you out, maybe, when they shouldn't necessarily, or maybe they should, anyway. So, church leaders have been getting it wrong for ages. That's just a little side point. But when it comes to understanding the relationship between the, the people and the priests, we see that the priest is supposed to have empathy, but even because of his own sin, it's supposed to help him be empathetic. But because of his own sin, he's also sometimes just flawed and fails. And so he makes mistakes. And you have to just live with that. That's the nature of leadership. You don't get perfect leaders. Oh well, people, sorry. In this church, you don't have perfect leaders. The people have also got it wrong. Not just the leaders. You see... We've corrupted this thing in church circles by also creating the cult of hero or guru where people put their leader up on a pedestal. 
And they say, this guy is apostle so-and-so and his ministry is like untouchable, you know. And when someone brings a criticism against this man of God who's basically doing some kind of ministry in the church, what do they say? Don't touch the Lord's anointed. <laughs> Quote scripture at them to protect the guru idol of their hero, whoever he is. And the church does that. We exalt flesh and blood fallen human beings. And it's wrong. Many cases, you're putting a man on a pedestal, a pedestal just because of his human gifting, his natural talent, just because he's charming or eloquent. And people do that with politicians too. We often just elevate men, not because they're worthy men, but because they've got all kinds of appealing characteristics. Someone once said, never follow a man who doesn't walk with a limp. Never follow a man who doesn't walk with a limp. What is the point of this? The idea of being invulnerable leads to a cultish separation where that person gets put up there in an, on a pedestal and you are just a nobody and then you kind of like hello this individual and leaders in churches should never have that air of being invulnerable yeah. or being like without flaw, without fault. So that's one problem that you find. The congregations and people exalt people into a place of hallowing them when they're just flawed failures to some degree. We also have the problem of self-appointment. People sometimes say, this is what I want to do, and then they take a hold of it in the flesh. They just have carnal ambition. So there are some people who say, um, I want to go and become this ministry, whatever, and they chase after it, and they can do a lot of stuff in their own strength, and yet self-appointment is something that this writer says is not up to us. We have to consider what God is doing. So Hebrews 5 verse 4 says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So no one should grasp at and take some kind of a leadership or ministry, or certainly not even a high priest office for himself. And Paul made this very clear in scripture. When Paul speaks about himself, he says he's Paul, called by God, and appointed to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul understood that when God works in your life, God has a plan for your life and God actually appoints you to His purpose. And this is actually true for everyone in the body of Christ. That God has actually predestined good works for us to do. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us that. And then God actually sets us apart for those works. And if we want to, we should set ourselves apart to the same thing. And we should want to because you should desire to please God. The point is, whatever you're calling, it wasn't your choice. It was God's plan. So God has a plan for some of us to be evangelists and some of us to be uh, good husbands and some of us to be rich businessmen. And some of us, want God wants to be school teachers. And everything that you do with your life, there should be this sense of what is God calling me to I don't just pick it. I don't just choose it for myself. God chooses me for something. 
And so it's, it's interesting to me that in this situation, the idea of being chosen is also, it's, it's elevated because what it shows me is when you come then to understand the heart behind your salvation, it was God the Father who chose Jesus to be the high priest for your salvation. It means that Jesus didn't say, I want to save them, and the Father said, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, but have mercy, Dad. They're just dumb and blind. No, it was the Father who saw that we were dumb and blind and said, my son, I want you to save them. Yeah. I'm choosing you and appointing you. And so the idea that some of us have of God can be like developed further when you understand that the Father is the initiator of salvation. He's the one who actually looked at our situation and said, I'm going to save them. He's not just judging us while Jesus defends us. Yeah. That's a distortion that cuts you off from the heart of God. The heart of God is to save you. Yes. And the way He did it is by choosing Jesus to be your Savior and putting Him forward as this candidate, the high priest candidate. And so... What we see is, the writer here says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And I want to live that way in my life. I want to say, God, I don't want to do the things you haven't called me to do. I don't want to take honor for myself that you haven't got for me. If you've called me to shepherd 30 people, then I will shepherd those 30 people faithfully for the rest of my life. I don't need a mega church. I don't want a mega ministry. I want to have what God has called me to do. That is how I want to live my life. And what you'll discover is God has called you to some things and other things, and sometimes He promotes you. But what He cares most about is how you are in every step of the journey. In other words, if He has called you to be a wife to your husband, then that's a holy thing. If He has called you to be a father to your children, then that's a holy thing. You must live up to those callings. Why is Aaron being mentioned here? Aaron is now to draw attention very specifically to this priesthood. And I want us to delve into that a bit further. So I'm going to quote from someone called Benjamin Shaw. I don't know him, but he was on a good website that I trust on the internet. And he was explaining some of the Levitical and Aaronical priesthood ideas. And he says this. When we come to the issue of Levitical and Aaronical or Aaronic priesthoods, we find that we are using two different names for the same thing. The priestly office in ancient Israel belonged to the descendants of Aaron, though eventually it was limited to the line of Zadok. This family was part of the tribe of Levi through Kohath, one of the sons of Levi. The remaining families of the descendants of Levi provided men for the role of Levite, whose duties were set out in Numbers chapter 4. Primarily, they served as assistants to the priests, and those duties were changed by David as he made preparation for the building of the temple. In short, the tribe of Levi took the place of the firstborn in Israel. In that way, the entire tribe filled a priestly role, but only the descendants of Aaron held the office of priest. So that's to help us understand why Aaron is being singled out here. It's because he was like the first high priest 
in the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. So it makes more sense than why Aaron's name is being mentioned. And then also, I'll read further, so we understood this priesthood better from another website called God Questions, which is a great website. The Levites who were not priests were given various duties in the caretaking of the tabernacle and its furnishings. The priests among the Levites were given the immeasurable privilege of doing service in the tabernacle. The Levitical priests also served as judges and teachers of God's law. The high priest could deliver edicts to guide the nation. He was the only one permitted to enter the most holy place, divided by a curtain from the rest of the tabernacle, and containing the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. So the high priest was allowed to go into the temple and then there was the curtain that separated the, 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 anybody who came that far from the presence of God which was represented by the Ark of the Covenant which was behind a curtain. The high priest was the only one who could go behind the curtain into the presence of God and he could only go into the presence of God once a year and perform the the, the pouring of the atonement offering on the mercy seat of that altar. So, that's the symbol of God's very presence. The high priest could only go in there on the day of atonement and he would provide atonement for himself and, and the rest of Israel. God held the priests to the most stringent standards of behavior and ritual purity. Abihu and Nadab, Nadab, were sons of Aaron and two of the first priests and they disobeyed God and they were instantly struck down. Later the sons of the high priest Eli treated the offering of the Lord with contempt and they were judged. So what we see is very limited access to the presence of God, very high risks going into God's presence. And these imperfect priests were chosen by God. And then when they weren't adequate, they were struck dead. I wouldn't want to be one of them. I mean, you can have all kinds of ambition. I don't want to be at the top, seriously. It just doesn't look like good odds. Life isn't nice, you know, when you have all of that fear. That you, you know, they, I've told you before that the thing that... I, made it real to me was when I when I learned that they actually put those little bells on the tassels of that high priest's garments and then they put a rope around I don't know where his ankle or something it was very practical because they had to solve this problem if he went in behind the curtain and he wasn't clean he would be struck dead how would you know if he had been struck dead? Do you wait till he starts to smell? That's not appropriate. So he had bells so you could hear that he was still moving. Very practical. These bells were not witchcraft charms, you know, like, you know, those other bells people hang on their verandas and stuff, wind charms. <laughs> Don't worry, you can have a wind charm. I didn't just say it was witchcraft. And, and, he would walk around and then if he had died, I guess the sound would go quiet. They would hear he's not doing his sacrifices anymore, praying his prayers. So then they would probably tug on the rope because the rope trailed outside of the curtain. 
And then they could drag the guy's body out of there. Like, I don't know that that ever happened. But that actually was, they made preparation for that. So anyway, the point is perhaps quite serious. That entering into God's presence is not something that you could do trivially. You could never do it lightly. And it carried all these weighty consequences because the priest himself had to deal with his own sin. So the writer to the Hebrews goes on to describe Christ and bring him into the story now, not exalting himself to be made a high priest, but appointed by God the Father. We read from Hebrews 5 verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does this mean, you are my son, but today I've begotten you? That term begotten was meaning at that point God's saying, and now I'm setting you apart to be appointed to the office of high priest. And so you, the eternal son of God, the father says, I'm setting you apart for this priesthood. And that is actually a quote from Psalm 2 verse 7. Psalm 2 verse 7 says, I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then the very next verse, which is one of my favorites, is Psalm 2 verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. That is one of the verses we use in Psalm 2 verse 8. It's not up at the moment, but Psalm 2 verse 8. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. That's the verse that kind of shows where Jesus is evangelistic to the ends of the earth and we as the church follow on in those footsteps. But the beautiful thing for me is that the precursor verse, verse 7, shows that it's in the light of him being set apart as a priest. You are my son, today I have begotten you, the writer to the Hebrews says, that is being set apart to this role. So it's all saving in its nature. And then of course that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek is a reference to Psalm 110. So Jesus, when he comes on the scene, would be better because he has no sin that he has to atone for in himself. He can stand forever in the presence of God. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, after Jesus died and rose again, never to die again, he lives forever. So unlike the other high priests of the Old Testament who died, Jesus will never die. Unlike the other Old Testament priests who had sin of their own and sometimes messed up and treated God's people badly, or messed up and got killed for it, Jesus never can, never will, never has messed up. So he stands forever in the presence of God. He doesn't go in with a rope attached to his ankle. There's no going back. He doesn't go there with an animal's blood. He goes there with his own blood. 
He doesn't present something temporary. He stands permanently there living forever as a high priest. That's why he's after the order of Melchizedek. So here now is Jesus. And I want you to see this is what the writer of Hebrews wants you to see in this passage. He is able to live forever in the presence of God. He is able to represent us forever in that place. We get much more about Melchizedek in chapter 7. But I want you to see that Jesus is not of the Levitical priesthood. He was not from the right tribe. Jesus was Lion of Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's not eligible to be a priest of the Old Covenant. He's a new priest in a new priesthood for the New Covenant. And that's where we should be putting our focus. That's what we should be thinking about. But what if you had a leader, a high priest, who really could do no wrong, never had, never did. That could also be a problem. Because now, if we really did have a perfect leader, and we put him on the pedestal he deserves, we'd have to push that pedestal so high that we wouldn't be able to even talk to him anymore. He's so far out there. He's so far above us in his perfection. Well, how can we even relate? So the writer of Hebrews is say Jesus is the perfect high priest who lives forever. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And what the writer goes to is straight to Gethsemane. This is a picture, a reference to Jesus praying before the crucifixion. And Jesus in his humanity is facing immense things. And it's not just death that Jesus is. He's not. There have been other martyrs who didn't try to escape being martyred. There are martyrs who have been killed for the glory of God and they've died really well. So Jesus wasn't saying, God, I don't want to go through death. I'm too afraid because other humans haven't been too afraid. But what Jesus didn't want to face was the, that he would become sin and be separated from God. That he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never having experienced that in, 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 his, in his flawless life, in his flawless existence, Jesus is now praying, crying out, feeling it. And I think what the writer wants you to understand is, Jesus is not just a perfect high priest who's sinless and unreachable, but he's also got the characteristics of every other priest chosen from among men. That he has lived among men and he has experienced these things. And so... What's the next verse? Hebrews 5 verse 8. Can you put it up? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It wasn't that he was disobedient, but he experienced the price of being obedient. He experienced what it meant for a human being to obey when it was sacrificial obedience. When it cost you something. When it put you into a place of obedience. 
hunger or thirst or tiredness or pain or sorrow. He experienced all of that. So he learned what obedience means at its cost side. God would never have had to experience that himself if he had just existed eternally as God. So he went through suffering. And the next verse, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being made perfect. He was always perfect. But he was now being made the perfect priest for us. He was becoming a, a perfect high priest because he was learning through experience what it is to be a human so that he could empathize with humans. And so Jesus is now not only the perfect high priest that you should exalt so high that you wouldn't even deserve an audience with him, but he is the one who has actually been one of us and tasted this life and he is the perfect priest to relate to you in your pain and in your sorrow and in your grief and in your trial. It's magnificent. I imagine Jesus in Gethsemane offering prayers and supplications. I'm going back to verse 7 now. In the days of his flesh, you see the writer is very specific that you need to consider Jesus also in his flesh. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And he was heard because of his reverence. He wasn't... He was offering prayers and supplications. Now look at the way that Jesus related to his Father. He knows, he knows that God the Father is in control of all things. And he says, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. That's what Jesus said in Gethsemane. He asked the Father if it's possible. And then what did he say? He said, yet not my will, but yours be done. So his praying is an offering of worship to God. It's not asking or claiming or demanding. It's not whinging or complaining. It's none of those things. He wasn't demanding something from God. He wasn't claiming something or complaining about something. And yet with loud cries and tears, he engaged his emotions. There's pain and authenticity. Some of us would look at that and call it charismatic emotionalism. There's none of that, no place for that in the church. No place for getting so emotional. Jesus got so emotional. Jesus with loud cries and tears brought an offering, offering prayers and supplications. And how would it be viewed by some of the conservatives from my home country? Christian conservatives who put up road signs that said, Be quiet, it's church. <laughs> no, Jesus, shut up. This isn't reverent behavior, loud cries and tears. It's not reverent of Jesus to make a noise. Yet he was heard because of his reverence, Scripture tells us. So where was the reverence? Of course it was in his heart. You see, he had surrendered before he even prayed. 
He had surrendered to what God's answer was before he even prayed. Can you imagine going to God in your prayer, in your pain, in your desperation, and saying, God, will you do this? Will you do this? But even if you don't, it's okay. That's surrender in the garden that Jesus demonstrated. He said, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. He said to the Father, I would have it like this, but I would go, I'll go with what you've decided. To me, Jesus models everything that you should be. He suffered, and you know what God did in a way? He said, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, what did the Father say? There's no way. No. I'm not backing out of this. We're not going back. You're going through this trial. You're going through this crucifixion. You sometimes pray to God and you say, Ah, God, won't you do this for me? And then God doesn't. Jesus can empathize. Do you realize that Jesus can even empathize with the no answer to a prayer? How does that even work? That he could ask for something and not get what he wants. And yet he had already surrendered to the will of the Father before he even prayed. And that's why he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard by his Father asking for something and the Father said, Actually, my boy, no. You must go through this pain. You go through the worst part of your life and you think God hasn't got a way to relate to you. You think he's moved away from you. I tell you, he's gone through the same thing as becoming your high priest. As becoming the one who can empathize with you in everything. And so I'm closing now. If he were perfect but never suffered, he would not be perfectly suited to being our high priest. He would have been up there, unreachable in his executive suite. But he lived here and he suffered. He deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. So somehow, without even being beset by his own weakness, Jesus fulfills what the high priest had to be according to chapter 5 verse 2, that said he was to deal gently with those who were weak. He became weak for us. This is our high priest. He's in every way superior. The covenant is new. The priest is new. The priesthood is new. It's 2024. It's a new year. I want us to think about the new covenant. It's not the covenant of Sinai. It's the covenant that Jesus made in his own blood. He is not like Aaron. He is not descended from Levi. He is of the order of Melchizedek. It is a new priesthood. And his priesthood, he does not die. He lives to intercede for us and represent us eternally before the Father. He is our high priest. Yeah.